Hey, this is Daniel. Just wanted to do a quick pre-show announcement that we'll be taking a, a short break uh, for Jews on Film. We haven't really talked about it too much on the podcast, but Harry and his lovely wife Jess are expecting their first child. And so as of this recording, they may be brand new parents. Mazel tov to them. And so we'll be taking a quick break and we'll uh, keep you all updated on social media when we are planning to release brand new episodes. But up until this point, we have continued episodes through the end of January, so you won't have to miss out on too much, but enjoy the time off and make sure to catch up on some old episodes and have a good one. Thanks. Welcome to Jews on Film, the podcast where we look at films both old and new through our unique Jewish lens. I'm Harry Adensasser, and I'm your Jewish film podcaster. And I'm Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, video editor, and I am still waiting for my perfect cup of cappuccino. Our guest today is a novelist, screenwriter, cultural critic, and humorist. He wrote the number one New York Times bestseller, Go the Fuck to Sleep, the novels Rage is Back, Angry Black White Boy, The End of the Jews, and dozens of other books. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times Book Review, Esquire, The Believer, The Guardian, and on NPR's This American Life, The Moth, and All Things Considered. His new book, The Golem of Brooklyn, is available now wherever books are sold. Adam Mansbach, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. We're discussing what sounds like your favorite movie, Hudson Hawk from 1991, directed by Michael Lehman, starring Bruce Willis. This is a fun film to watch, I'll say. You know, really enjoyable. I uh, was somewhat familiar with the idea of the film, but I don't know that I've ever actually seen it before. Harry, have you seen it before? No, I, I definitely hadn't. Definitely wasn't familiar. I enjoyed spending some time going down the rabbit hole of, you know, the hidden Bruce Willis cult classic. Like, this is the movie. This will be a classic in a couple of years. Just wait for people to find it, that kind of thing. And I felt like I'm part of that momentum now. So I'm happy that I got to see it. But no, I had never, never even heard of it until you suggested it. Yeah. Adam, I, I got to ask, like right up top, like what was it about this film that made you want to discuss it on Jews on Film? This is a film that I've been caping for for a long time because it was such a critical and commercial bomb when it came out. <laughs> and I feel like it was widely misunderstood and underappreciated. And I'm part of a small but important cadre of folks who understand and appreciate the true brilliance of this forgotten, much maligned classic. I think I saw it in theaters. I loved it. Upon my initial viewing, I've come back to it many times since. I've even made it kind of a litmus test for people in my life. You know, I was about to ask, what do people say when you show it to them? <laughs> like, right. do they match this enthusiasm, or is it a little bit more confusion? I would, I would suggest it runs the gamut. But uh, sure, you sure. know, my opinion of people is certainly fundamentally shaped by what they think of this movie. In fact, mm -hmm. in preparation for this conversation, I watched it again last night with my oldest daughter who is 15 and you know it was it was a little it was a little hairy at first i was <laughs> i was thinking that i might have to disown her but by the end Fair. of the movie she was like this is brilliant this is crazy i can't believe what i just watched i don't know what i just saw but i loved it and she was like laughing hysterically at all the right parts so you know i feel like maybe i've done something right as a parent yeah i think so i think showing them uh, you know, movies that were 
fundamental to your whether it's like appreciation of of Bruce Willis movies or certain type of cinema like I, I think maybe I you know as a film person I I tried to show my nine-year-old daughter Pee-wee's Big Adventure uh did not work like within the first couple of minutes she was out she was out and I feel like I'm not sure if if I've lost my chance forever on it but like it's about finding that right age and I feel like maybe a couple more years might do it yeah um, well you're gonna be it's an uphill climb now because you jumped the gun a little bit mm -hmm. you know she's built up those antibodies now <laughs> right, right, so. right, right. <laughs> right yeah it's um you know I think what is so interesting about this film is it's not like a um you can't really put it into like one box right the moment you and I think that's what you know, it's it's worth celebrating. I think critically, people didn't quite know where to put it. Is it like an action movie? Is it a musical? Is it a comedy? Is it uh, like an Indiana Jones style thing where there's ar archaeology and treasure hunting and things like that? Like what made critics not understand it is maybe what is uh, attributed to its sort of like success as in as a cult classic. Is that safe to say you think maybe? Is that it has it all like a variety pack? I'm not even sure that it's a cult classic. Oh, it's not. I okay. think. I think. I mean, I. I think the cult contains about four or five people. Okay. All of all of them <laughs> friends of mine from high school. Okay. Um, sure. you know, but I will say that cult is a. We have a significant cultural impact. Like all of the people that I know that love this film deeply, the way I do, have gone on to have incredible careers in the arts. Hmm. Um. The person I've probably spent the most time talking about this film with is my good friend, Andrew Bajowski, who is a writer and director of some note. Mm -hmm. uh, my other friend, Douglas McGowan, who's uh, carved out quite a career for himself as an A&R man and a reissue maven in the record world. My, my friend, Ben Blacker, who's a screen and TV writer and a podcaster. These are the people who alongside myself have nurtured this profound love of this movie. Um, so as you can see, we're an elite group. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're right. I think critics and moviegoers probably came into the Hudson Hawk experience expecting a straightforward action movie in the mode that Bruce Willis had created and carved out for himself. You know, mm -hmm. they thought it was going to be Die Hard. It's three years after Die Hard. It's worth pointing out, you know? Right. I mean, Bruce is a big star at this point. Maybe mm -hmm. they thought it was going to be the last Boy Scout. I don't know. Right. Um, but it's something profoundly weirder and 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 ultimately like kind of an absurdist masterpiece, I think, that has elements of that kind of Indiana Jones quest and mm -hmm. has action movie tropes. And as you say, has some singing. I'm going to reject the idea that, that it's a musical. I'm going to okay. say it's a, a movie that simply has... A lot of singing. Characters who sing. So, yeah, so just a couple, couple characters who sing. But, right. you know, so, I mean, I'm just making this up as I go along. But I feel like in a musical, the characters sing and everybody pretends they haven't just burst into oh, the song. Oh, true, 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 true. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, whereas in this movie, you know, the conceit around the music is that Bruce Willis and his crime partner, Danny Aiello, rather than time their heists out with watches or... Mm -hmm stopwatches or anything of that nature simply know exactly how how long each song right. in their repertoire is so as they commit these cat burglaries they sing the songs and they'll right. be in different places bruce willis will be you know in one part of the museum 
Danny Aiello will be in another, right. but they're jointly singing a song it's which beautiful. keeps them on time, which I think is a brilliant concept. Uh, we got about uh, five minutes and change. Five thirty-two, swinging on a star. You know they invented something while you're inside. It's called a watch. Hey Tom, what? so I'm going to say it's not a musical, just a, a, a movie fair, in which fair, two fair. characters sing a couple of songs. But also, like, you know, Bruce Willis is one of the creators of the story Bruce Willis, it's worth noting, at this time was very much pursuing a sideline as a singer. Mm -hmm. He put out yeah. two albums on Motown. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was really <laughs> trying to sing. Like, uh, so, you know, you could only imagine that in crafting this vehicle for himself, he was like, look, I'm going to sing a couple of fucking songs. Like, figure this, out how, but that's definitely right, happened. Right. This movie is so absurd in its construction and its execution, and I'm right. willing to get on board of this cult and just embrace all of it for what it is. It, we it are is funny, happy the way to that, have you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, look, the way you were talking about the sphere of influence that the cult members have, I mean, it, it directly mirrors this movie, which is really about the way that a couple people are mm. you know, drawing, like machinating on, on the entire world, right? It's, it's right. these like corporate elites. It, it's like every, you know, cultist, secret society, the Vatican. I mean, the Elders Vatican of Zion, it's with. right there, Harry. Come on. It's all there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, when we start pulling in the Jewishness there, we'll, right. we'll definitely uh, grab, grasp at all of that. But it's all in there. But I just also wanted to respond to just some of your takes on this movie, sure. which admittedly took me a minute to really uh, get on board with. It was <laughs> ridiculous and totally all over the place. Yeah. And yeah. there were moments by the end where I wasn't sure if, they had the movie had actually embraced kind of the ridiculousness of it by the end. And I was like, where was this at the beginning? Or maybe I just wasn't watching it that way in the beginning because I was expecting something a little more traditional, a little more of like a spy caper that made it feel more tonally mixed up. But again, if we're going to give them credit, which I think is going to be the tone of this podcast. Yeah, it was always it was always supposed to be mixed up. Like it reminds me of this great quote that I uh, once heard from the creator of Succession from I think Jesse Armstrong created Succession, where someone was telling him like, yeah, like episode seven in season one or something is like the real turning point of the show because it's when you finally figured out the characters, you know, like as a writer, you know, for this show. And he's like, I figured out these characters a long time ago. It just took you seven episodes to figure uh, out who they were. Yeah, I always yeah. knew who they were. And yeah. I'm questioning now, having only watched this movie once, did I only understand how to actually watch the movie in the last 30 minutes when there's some <laughs> ridiculous moments like a character driving off of a cliff in a fiery car that explodes and then saying, the, the sprinklers turned on and you put out the, the fire airbags right? the airbags saved me and when i heard that i was like oh this this movie is not taking itself seriously at all right. and i don't know maybe the next time i watch it i'll be like masterpiece i get what they're right. doing but i will admit the first time through it felt a little bit you know mixed tonally kind of all over the place sure. that's my uh immediate impression that's fair i think you just keyed in on the key line in the entire movie if you mm. understand the scene yeah so so you know for those who I, I'm not really worried about giving spoilers here. So I'm just, yeah, yeah, oh, I, yeah. I think it's right. fair game. Danny Aiello goes off a cliff in a car that is on fire. He is locked in. You see the car crash into a gully. And then some 15 minutes later, as the movie is wrapping up and we're in the kind of denouement where Bruce Willis and Andy McDowell are striding after their escape through the Italian countryside. And one of them's like, man, I only wished it. 
Tommy was here. Lo and behold, he rides up on a donkey covered in soot, and they're like, Did you miss anything? It's supposed to be all cracked up at the bottom of the hill. Airbags, can you fucking believe it? You're supposed to be blown up into fiery chunks of flesh. Sprinkler system set up in the back. Can you fucking believe it? Yeah, that's probably what happened. Drink your cappuccino. That's the whole movie in a nutshell. And like, and in another movie, I think they would have played it, which is what I was expecting was, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't see it on camera, but he opened the door and snuck out the side right. before it went off the right. cliff. And right, that's right, the right. misdirect. But I think the movie could saw that option and took the more ridiculous exactly. one because it knew what it was 100%. doing. Like I, right. The one thing I will give this movie, and as I'm thinking about it more, you know, in a way that I know it was received very poorly, but it felt very ahead of its time in terms of like oh. the quippiness, the mm -hmm. the irreverence, the almost like resolve, like almost every situation that Bruce Willis's characters and he says it like six times, like I never wanted to do this, like I'm just doing what they're telling me, and like he he's so. Um, not quite meta, but just like pulling himself out of the situation right. in a way that feels so modern and so like, you know, Ryan Reynolds-esque in a sense. Ah, uh, yeah. And yeah, I was yeah, just yeah. watching this and just thinking like, I get what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. But again, my qualms were that the rest of the movie didn't catch up to that. Like, uh -huh. I almost, I don't know, we're, we're going so much into just like the, you know, our yeah, reactions have cut me off when I'm saying too much. But um, the character Darwin, played by Richard E. Grant, like, I was watching every scene he was in and I was like, this guy gets the movie he's in. Mm -hmm. He is playing it perfectly. He's yeah. in the tone. And like, I was waiting for what I felt like, you know, Bruce Willis and some of the other characters. I'm like, just like catch up to that. And again, I don't know if the the kind of the misaligned tones and all the weird way that everyone's playing it, like, you know, his, uh, the, the one, the, the, the sister who works at the Vatican, like her tone, which is much more genuine, like, I don't know if, again, that mess of tones is supposed to be like, this is an absurdist movie like we've re been referring to it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like I said, I mean, this is all going to change when I watch it a second time and see it right. for the masterpiece that it yeah. was. But I think <laughs> on first, it's just, this is a wild movie. That's yeah. I'll leave it at that. And it's interesting that like Bruce Willis, it's not that he's he's not the straight man with a bunch of like uh, silly characters. It's like everybody's a silly character. It's all so heightened and so, you know, they're scary, but they're also like real goofy and like, you know, the rug is sweeped right under the bad guy when they're like flashing through all the photos and then you like, you get some like boudoir photos of them with their like tryst and, you know, uh, so like the wind is like taken out of the bad guy pretty quickly where he's like, you sort of scary but also kind of like goofy and we're meant to laugh at him as well and there's just like a lot like all the candy bad guys are really great there's a a bunch of henchmen who are named after candy bars named snickers you play leaves in 40. almond joy get it candy bars well it's better than when we first started out our code names were diseases do you know what it's like being called chlamydia for a year my name's Butterfinger. Oh shit. And then we have the uh, the two guys, the twins, almost uh, you know, like that precursor to those Matrix twins, you know, sort of uh, I forget what they're called, like Ook and Eek or something like that. I forget exactly what they're called, but just it's it's tonally it's it's pretty fun and wild, and I think like you said, Harry and Adam as well, like going into it a second time, knowing what to expect, I think helps you kind of appreciate it. And then you can kind of find all the little things in between. Uh, Harry, did you already tell us what the movie's about from an IMDb perspective or let's, let's, uh, let's catch up our audience real quick. Yeah, no, I'm actually excited. I haven't looked at it yet. I'm excited to see how uh, the IMDb summarizer came up with this. There's two in there, I think. And I think the, the more, 
the more concise one is fine, but uh, yeah, either word work. I'll go concise. I want to see how they can wrap up this whole movie. A cat burglar is forced to steal Da Vinci works of art for a world domination plot. <laughs> My favorite part of that is that they just go a world domination plot because Again, you know, as an expert here, Adam, I'm, I'm interested to hear if you might be able to outline it for me, but I could not for the life of me track what the plot was. Every new introduction, <laughs> right. every new like, oh, and like these people were part of it and she's secretly a double agent and they're working with them. And I at some point in the movie, I just gave up and I'm just like, okay, let's see. Let's see if they're <laughs> successful. I'm happy to explain further, but Please. sure. All right. So Bruce Willis is a cat burglar who's just getting out of jail after a 10 year bid. He is immediately blackmailed by his parole officer into committing a heist at a museum, stealing a horse made by Leonardo da Vinci. Pretty soon, what we realize is that this theft and a series of other thefts that he will be coerced into committing um, are in service of a plot to rebuild the machine that da vinci invented that was able to alchemize lead into gold which da vinci realized was sort of too powerful uh a power for anybody to possess so he hid the various parts of the crystal at the heart of the machine inside of other items one is inside this hollow horse one is hidden inside his codex so the idea is to reassemble this crystal and rebuild this alchemy machine. Now, the parties involved are um, a kind of sociopathic billionaire couple played by Sandra Bernhardt and Richard E. Grant. The best. Um, who are essentially going to use this alchemy machine to destabilize the world economy, leaving, ah, themselves, okay. leaving themselves as the only sort of financial empire left. But also in the mix is a contingent of CIA agents led by James Coburn. And the idea is that this is like the new CIA. At one point, Coburn refers yes. to his operatives as the MTVIA because they're like yes. young and they wear colorful suits. Right. And their their code names are all candy bars. Right. Kit Kat, Snickers, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. David Caruso plays one of them, in fact. Right, right. Um, so the other player involved in this sort of multi-pronged caper is the Vatican, which is attempting to counteract this plan that Coburn, the CIA, and the Mayflowers are engaged in. And working on behalf of the Vatican is an art historian slash nun played by Andy McDowell, who Bruce Willis encounters at the auction at which this horse is being sold after he steals it. So he knows he attends the auction because the horse being auctioned is clearly a fraud because he stole the real one the night before. Pretty soon we end up in Rome. Pretty soon we end up with Bruce Willis having to rob the actual Vatican. Bruce Willis's partner in crime is his boy Tommy Fivetone, played by the great Danny Aiello. So yeah, that's kind of the movie in a nutshell. It's yeah. Amazing. No, that's uh, that's it's a lot. I mean, even as you're describing it, I think uh, there's so many different like pieces and so many different characters that are. Um, we could go, you know, I think everyone coming to the film, like it's such a solid cast. Like you called out, um, David Caruso, but Sandra Bernhardt's in there and Danny Aiello, James Coburn, like some folks are like, 
you know, Coburn is sort of a legend from like the great escape and iron cross and magnificent seven and things like that. So this is sort of his later period work. Um, Caruso, this is probably before NYPD blue, right? So. Sandra Bernhardt is like a, a stand-up comedian and a one woman show performer, cabaret stuff. You know, Richard E. Grant went on to do other things like with nail and I Gosford park. He was in star Wars recently. So it's, it's a really good cast. And this is, you know, Bruce Willis sort of right after Die Hard. Die Hard was like in the uh, early or the late 80s. And then he re-teamed up with the writer, Stephen E. D'Souza, um, and then Daniel Waters, who had worked with the director, Michael Lehman. I'm, I'm already hopping into Context Corner, Harry. Apologize. But, uh, Please. you know, Michael Lehman had done before uh, the comedy Heathers. And then he later on was directing, you know, 40 Days and 40 Nights, Truth About Cats and Dogs, um, airheads, classic airheads, and then because I said so, other things like that. Adam, did you ever play the Hudson Hawk video game on, on NES or other systems? I was not aware until this very moment that that existed. Surprise! Yeah, wow. it was it was on multiple gaming systems, but the one, I think it was on the PC and the Commodore as well. But it's essentially, like I watched on YouTube because YouTube is a great place sometimes, um, where you can find stuff where people are playing the Nintendo game and you just watch them play. And so someone is like crawling over a little string wire um, and like dodging pigeons and collecting art. And I think the plot of the film is to recapture some of these artifacts, like you mentioned, the, the Sforza and the and the Codex and the, the little, um, I think it was like a kite or a glider the thing or the yeah, parachute or something plane, like that plane, yeah. yeah so that's sort of the plot of the movie the model or the plot of the game rather but um some other context worth calling out uh you know the film had a 65 million dollar budget and then box office worldwide was 97 million but from what i understand and what you mentioned adam it did not do well um at the theaters but later on on laserdisc and then on home video and then globally it tended to have a a better performance overall because of the sophistication of foreign audiences versus American. Oh, sure. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think people saw that he was in Italy and then the Italian audiences were like all over it. I don't know about you, but when I was watching it um, on whatever, I think it was on Hulu, a lot of the Italian was not translated. It just said parentheses Italian. And I wondered like, what are we missing there? I don't speak Italian, but I would, I would have loved to kind of get into it. Uh, you sort of had an idea of what they were saying just in the way that they were saying it. But, um, I well, wonder if we're missing out, you know? I think it's a it's a bold uh, directorial choice that really pays dividends mm -hmm. because, you know, you are leaving the reader or the viewer to try to comprehend this foreign language. And, right. you know, sometimes the wash of a language is more instructive or more evocative than knowing the exact words. It allows you to engage with your imagination in a different kind of way. I say that, of course, as somebody who just published a novel full of untranslated Yiddish. So, right. I mean, I have a vested interest in making this argument. Something that I've often told writing students is that you make a contract with your reader within the first couple of pages of mm -hmm. the work, right? And I think the same is true across all forms of art. Very quickly, you establish the rules of engagement. You establish what kind of story you are telling which in turn allows the viewer or the reader or the listener to make a decision about whether they choose to continue or not. And I think this is why we often feel betrayed or befuddled by works that 
switch up on you in midstream. And I say that in defense of the tone of Hudson Hawk, which for my money is very consistent throughout in the sense that within the first five minutes of the movie, Bruce Willis is sitting down to enjoy a cappuccino, which is the the one thing that he has missed most during his incarceration, right? Mm -hmm. He's been dying for a cappuccino. By the point that he's in the bar, which he is a half owner of along with Tommy Five Tone, mm -hmm. but the bar has become a gentrified yuppie haven during his time away because the world yeah. has changed on him. This is already the second cappuccino he's attempting to drink. <laughs> right, right, right. To Tommy brings him one as soon as he steps out of jail, but uh, it spills all over him when Tommy hits the brakes on the car when Bruce Willis tells him that the parole officer has blackmailed him. So this is his second attempt at drinking a cappuccino. What stops him, what prevents him from achieving his cappuccino bliss? A mobster across the bar shoots the cup and yeah. it explodes in his hand, leaving him holding only the handle of the cup. Right. This dude shoots a bullet through a crowded bar. It explodes. And no one reacts. Right. I, I just went back to my notes where I wrote, like, what the hell is going on here? Like, right. And it literally <laughs> just shot him. And, and the trajectory of the bullet ends at that point. It doesn't right. hit anybody else. Right. You know, there's a right. hundred other people in the bar. So I would argue that by that point in the movie, if not before, we've got a pretty clear mm -hmm. idea right. yeah. of well what said. we're dealing with. Um, you know, and that's and, and if and if that hasn't tipped us off, the chase scene in which Bruce Willis's gurney falls out of an ambulance on the freeway and he has to navigate freeway traffic on a gurney while being pursued by the CIA. And right, and then the woman like pulls up and the woman like pulls up next to him and says like, Are you gonna die? <laughs> he's yeah, like, I yeah. hope not or something, but <laughs> right. it just, you know. And he's, you know, and, 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 and like he's coming up against the toy. He's like, oh, takes a bunch of change out of his pocket and throws it into the toll thing and goes through like, I feel like I'm being communicated with in terms of the tone of the movie from I a pretty it. early boy. <laughs> I wanted to ask a quick follow-up question. You know, as a author of a recently published book, Gollum of Brooklyn, it seems like the movie Hudson Hawk has had such a huge place in your life. And so I wanted to know what of the myriad of ways it has inspired you or kind of influenced you in terms of you know, tone or pacing or character development in your new book? I think that one of the things I admire about Hudson Hawk is that at every available opportunity, they make the weirdest possible choice. Mm -hmm. There's a real commitment to resolving problems, dilemmas, character moments by doing something that's totally left field and bizarre and unexpected, mm -hmm. but... Right which also is coherent and of a piece with everything else that's being done. And the reason that I enjoy writing novels is that you can get away with whatever you can get away with. Right. As opposed to some of the other forms that I write in. Screenplays, for example. It's a very rigid form. It's not one that allows a lot of digression, a lot of flights of fancy, a lot of self-indulgence. A screenplay is not the place to do any of those things, usually. Whereas a novel, if you can keep all the balls in the air, you can tell stories inside of stories. You can flash out of the main spine of the plot to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You can kind of incorporate everything that you want to. And while Hudson Hawk is obviously a movie based on a screenplay and not a novel, that spirit 
of intrepid risk-taking and of refusing to let anything be pro forma or flat or uninspired or uninventive is a constant source of inspiration for me project to project. Like, there are so many characters in this movie that a lesser film would have just allowed to be sort of blank, sketched in, two-dimensional. Like, the candy bars are ultimately kind of a goon squad. Yeah. Okay. Most movies would allow them to just be undifferentiated henchmen, and they would just go around and do their henching, and they wouldn't even have names. Each and every one of them is memorable and quirky mm -hmm. yeah. and hilarious and distinct. They're invested with that measure of personality and humanity. And despite the fact that they're just sort of tertiary characters whose main job is to show up and enforce and die in colorful ways, you know, they're rich enough that you actually like mourn the loss of each sure. one of them and appreciate each moment on screen that they have. It, I, I did see some parallels, like your characters in your books are, you know, so unique and so interesting. And like, like I was telling you before we started recording, like everyone who I had told the premise of your book about, like they seemed, it's it's so different than what a lot of, you know, it just melds so many good like um, ingredients, a lot of different things and putting it into this really nice salad, you know, and, and, and the pacing was really good and, uh, you know, it kept me interested the entire time, as with Hudson Hawk. So, you know, I think uh, I could I could see the DNA in the book from from the Hudson Hawk DNA somewhat in there. It might be a little stretchy, but uh, you know, good stuff. I would definitely suggest folks checking out the book. But I'm I think I think we're due for a break, real quick. I think we can kind of get into the to the themes of the film. Harry, anything else to add, real quick, before I jump to break? Let's do it. All right, cool. We'll take a quick break. We'll come right back and then we'll get into the themes depicted in the film Hudson Hawk. We'll be right back. The name's Harry Dolowich from New York City, and I'd like you to join me with the help of an incredible cast of actors like Richard Kind, Louis Black, Melanie Linsky, and Bobby Cannavale for the unbelievable true story of how I rose from nothing to something after taking over the one business the mafia was too blind to see, the chocolate syrup business. So come slurp up the first 10 fizzy installments of King of the Egg Cream, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Adam Mansbeck to discuss the classic film from 1991, Hudson Hawk. Harry, I'm going to toss it over to you to, to get us started with some themes. For sure. So as this is Jews on Film, obviously the task that we normally do for our longtime listeners is try to parse out some of the Jewish themes and content that we can kind of extract from the movie. I think this was probably one, Adam, after talking to you for a bit, that you just really wanted to get us to discuss the movie and might not have drawn all of those connections but don't you worry daniel and i spent some time coming up with some i mean we did the work some creative reads there are some that honestly like it's a lot of the text i mean this is about the vatican i think there's a lot of connections we're going to make there you know questions of religious themes and maybe i'm underestimating you and you've thought this all out but anyways just wanted to open a couple loose discussions just about some of the jewish maybe influence themes that we were able to pull from the movie so 
one of them that I wanted to jump into is this concept, you know, and we're pulling a lot of like, you know, Catholic, you know, themes because there's a whole Vatican story at the center of this and we can even dive into that. But specifically themes of guilt, kind of sinning, thievery, like there's a lot going on here. There are characters that are, you know, in some ways, the moral centers of the film, you know, Bruce Willis that are like reluctantly he's reluctantly like thieving you know stealing these insane heists these hundred million dollar you know items but his reluctance doesn't really come from a place of like any guilt or responsibility or you know morality over what he's doing it's really just like i don't want to get you know thrown into jail i don't want to get back in trouble i kind of want to shift my life and what i clocked when i was watching this the first time is the only moment we see where there's an actual sense of like guilt and you know someone being almost like admonished you know even in a movie that has so many of these very you know religious catholic characters the only time i think is when um andy mcdowell's character is doing her you know hail mary she's talking to um the priest in, in confession and she's talking about their scheme and how they're stealing these things and you know again the the, the priest doesn't really seem phased but then she's says that she started messing around with Bruce Willis's character. Hudson Hawk is not who we thought he was. He came into a world where crime is a legitimate business tactic and a legitimate government procedure, but he knew right from wrong. Oh, and we kind of messed around. Deo santo, que distraction in questa vita. Messed around, messed around. Seventeen Hail Marys and five minutes outside. She doesn't care at that point. She's like focused on the other stuff. And he's like, give me five Hail Marys like this. And all of a sudden that kind of becomes the thing that they lay into. And I just thought that was an interesting dynamic where like this is a movie about, you know, stealing from literally from the Vatican, from the church. There's this kind of moral complexity that I think is somewhat present in the movie. But the way people react to it was a little surprising to me. So just wanted to throw some of those ideas out there, see if that was something that when you were watching this or when you've watched it, you know, the many times that you have, you've kind of considered the moral questions about it or just chalked it up to this is a movie that's not weighing those implications, but where do those fit in? And as always, bonus points if you can pull in some Jewish themes into it. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think I think that we are dealing in Hasanog in a world of moral relativism, right? Mm -hmm. We're dealing in a world of real politic. We're dealing with numerous entities with enormous power who are trying to balance wrongdoing with the greater good. We're dealing with um, a, an immediately post-Cold War geopolitical landscape in which the CIA has lost its longtime purpose, in which private corporations with incredible and ill-earned wealth are scheming on becoming nation states in and of themselves. The Vatican, as the seat of global Catholicism, also acts almost as an independent nation state. Right. Certainly the Vatican, you know, Vatican City is in fact a country. Um, and then we're dealing on a smaller scale through Bruce Willis's character with somebody grappling with their own moral compass and complexity. And I think all of this is debated with a kind of Talmudic yeah, intensity and vigor I'm here for it, yeah, right. Because if there's anything that is quintessentially Jewish, the rigorous pursuit of truth and the agreement to disagree on exactly where the locus of that truth resides, and I think we see that in Hudson Hawk. It's a deeply Talmudic movie in the sense that these various sources are positing various conceptions of morality. 
mm-hmm. and of the relativism of morality. What, when it is okay to steal, when it is permissible to do violence, in pursuit of what? And there's no clean resolution because there's no single entity in possession of the authority to come in and overrule the others. Not the Vatican, not the CIA, not the government, not the very entities that are actually empowered to punish um, or to mete out consequences. In some sense, those consequences reside in your own being, in your own soul. For Andy McDowell, it's the question of whether her religiosity outweighs both her responsibility to and attraction to Bruce Willis's character. For Bruce Willis, it's the nature of theft and the nature of redemption and law versus, you know, human law versus what you might find in the Talmud as a reference to like the laws of heaven, right? Often these things are elucidated in the Talmud as being in opposition or not being the same, that you are liable for this transgression. You must pay restitution or you must sacrifice or you must be exiled according to the laws of man, but you are actually exempt according to the laws of heaven, right? So many of the crimes Bruce Willis commits, he's grappling with the laws of man versus the laws of heaven, a higher morality versus a kind of state-sponsored, state-enforced morality. And this is further complicated by the fact that the state is corrupt. All of the states and all of the entities and all of the governments and all of the people in possession of the kind of power it takes to mete out punishment are clearly compromised and corrupt, as exemplified by the Mayflowers, who, Mm -hmm. again, act as if they were a city-state, act as if they were a sovereign nation, but abuse power in ways that are utterly egregious and absurd, like on a moment-by-moment basis. There's not an employee that they don't physically assault for no apparent reason. Minerva just walks around like kicking and slapping people who work for her Mm -hmm. because she can. Yeah. Right. There's a line where, uh, you know, he says like, oh, like we should shoot them. And then she does. And he says, I was kidding. And they just kind of they laugh that. Yeah. Her her lack of regard for human life is uh, it's apparent like they're constantly, you know, like you said, punishing people, killing people. They have no regard for others. I feel like they are so far removed. Their headquarters is in this like beautiful Italian building, uh, very modern. I'm trying to like adjust and calibrate my read because like it could be both. I'm not sure. But like I'm trying to figure out who our coded Jewish characters are. And I'm not sure if I want to go like that Bruce Willis is the coded Jewish character and being sort of like oppressed by the Vatican. Or are Sandra Bernhardt and Richard Grant are coded, even though their names are Mayflower, I understand. But Sandra Bernhardt is in a very identifiable Jew. And, you know, they're, they're, they're messing with money. And that's like a classic Jewish trope. And, and they're trying to like control things. And there's that whole, you know, sort of like Jewish cabal conspiracy theory we have going on. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of at a crossroads here. I'm not quite sure which direction I could go. I could go both, but I feel like in order for it to work for, for our lens, I feel like I have to make a choice and pick one lane because, or it could be just like a low status Jewish person being oppressed by like the Vatican and high status Jews. I'm not sure. I'm still kind of like, you know, figuring all this stuff out but uh that's kind of where my head's at right now well i mean i think to begin with bruce willis from the the first moment he appears on screen is engaged 
in a prolonged and profound application of shtick to every right. situation that he finds sure, himself sure. in. He's yeah. never without a witticism or uh -huh. a remark. Right. Um, you know, I think also you could argue that Bruce Willis is sort of caught between the American imperialism of Coburn and the CIA, mm -hmm. the domineering religiosity of the Catholic Church, uh -huh. and also the feeling of being lost in diaspora because the world he's emerged into after being in prison for 10 years mm -hmm. has become gentrified mm -hmm. and okay. also, you know, not just gentrified, but gentrified by a certain class of, in the film they call them yuppies, right? Mm -hmm. the, 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 he is the co-owner of what used to be a dive bar with his friend Tommy. In the 10 years since, the neighborhood has changed. Tommy narrates it very beautifully and succinctly. I don't know how to tell you this, Eddie. A couple of brokers stopped in for Stoli Spritzes one night. Now we're a nice local bar that none of the locals can afford. I read about these people in Newsweek. Where's all the regulars? Where's crazy Jeff Carver? Gone. Where's that cripple's autograph? Gone, Eddie. Tommy, you took down Captain Bob's steering Eddie, wheel? Eddie, they're all gone. But look at the bright side. Half this joint is yours. <laughs> hey, Blackjack, give my irritable partner a cappuccino. I gotta go be a boss. This is one of the great central dilemmas of Jewish life, right? Is what does assimilation buy you and lose you? Is it adapt and survive or is it adapt and perish? Tommy Two-Tone as, uh, you know, the most ethnic character in the movie, right? He's mm -hmm. never referred to without some sobriquet reflecting his Italianness, his Italian-Americanness, right. his hyphenate Italian-Americanness. He's always being called a guinea or some shit, right. playfully, but, you know pointedly he as this kind of like uh barkeep has had to make a decision about whether he's going to assimilate and adapt in order to survive or refuse that assimilation and go the way of the dinosaur and he's chosen to assimilate he's now serving reindeer goat cheese pizza at this bar right, right, he's, right. he's he's taken down all the signifiers they used to be oh, all over yeah, the place. That's right. Where's the There's picture on the wall? Right, right, repeated, right. Bruce Willis comes in and repeatedly is like astounded that the the steering wheel yeah, that yeah. Captain Bob showed up with one day and nobody could figure out where he got it has been taken off the wall and is relegated to a back room, right? Now, you know, I don't want to go as far as to say that the steering wheel is like a mezuzah. Oh. But it's also but it's also not not a mezuzah. Uh -huh. I mean we are going to ask you to go through with that when we get up to our stretch of the pod category later, because that's kind of exactly what we're looking for there. But I also like I, I really I really love this read. And I also think that if you follow Tommy Two Tones character, you know, up to when he's working with the Mayflowers. Five tones. Five tones. Sorry, I'm doing the alliteration. Three more tones. Tommy Five Tones. Yeah. Giving the credit he's deserving. I don't want to sell him short. Yeah. But when he like and then when he ultimately like gives that up, I mean, there's a real, you know, anti-assimilation arc, I would argue, you know, through the end when he kind of redeems himself and then mm -hmm. is, you know, quote unquote, purified through fire by the end. But I also wanted to jump into what you were discussing earlier about the moral relativism, which I just thought was like, honestly, you know, brilliant. And in this movie, and this is, uh, you know, rising further and further up my uh, estimation of this movie <laughs> right. as, as we keep talking about it, because I think you're dead on. And when you were talking about kind of the Talmudic, you know, the questions of, you know, contextual responsibility, relative, you know, morality, like we were saying, and, you know, 
where is he responsible for some of these, you know, objectively stealing things worth a couple, you know, million dollars is one thing, but obviously when you're stealing it to prevent some people from getting it, there's right. something else there. But what's fascinating about his character, and I want to hear if you thought this also, but it almost seemed like he he lacked a lot of control over his life and his decisions coming out of jail, mm-hmm. you know, not quite yeah. in the sense that he was passive, like he's doing a lot of active things. And he ultimately, you know, the end climactic moment is his kind of decision to, you know, mess up the whole thing. That's all him. Right. But until that point, as like, we can't even blame his thievery as we don't even need to dismiss it on account of, you know, moral relativism. He didn't have a choice. He's threatened right. with his life. He's threatened with going back to jail, like not at, at a single point, not a, at a single point in the beginning. Is there not some new group kind of pushing him towards something? And to reinforce, you know, the, the Talmudic view, you said it just reminded me of when the, the Talmud is assessing damage for certain things. I mean, there's this category, there's this category of person called like an ones, who's someone who was forced to do something that wasn't their choice. It's not even like they made a mistake. They literally had no choice in the matter. And they're almost always absolved of everything because mm-hmm. the Talmud recognized, you know, how can you blame someone? So I think that re- that that read of his character and kind of how he's you know, delving into the morality of this world, of this world as a thief, is completely justified in the sense that he really lacks agency. And who's controlling him? I think you already articulated. It's a lot of these different, you know, powers moving together. Is there any that's more divine? I mean, you could argue that the Catholic Church is supposed to be, but ultimately fall short of that. But he he is a victim to just all these powerful people, all these, you know, cabalists in a sense, or, you know, cabals, I don't want to confuse that, but... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not not the Kabbalah, but like, you know, whatever, these people that are just kind of forcing his hand at almost every step of the way. Yeah. Yeah. These organizations, you know, in turn represent allegiance, theoretical allegiance to God, to money and to power. And the yeah. ways in which all three of those are swirled together allow them to interact and collaborate and ultimately betray each other. Right. But yeah, I would agree. And yes, um, in terms of the the Talmudic assessment of guilt, yeah, Bruce Willis is innocuous and would not be forewarned in this situation. Um, he has very little agency and is, again, this is also very Jewish, right? What he's ultimately dealing with is a very constrained level of agency and he's trying to make the best choices he can right. for his survival for the survival of those he loves for his livelihood within this very constrained set of parameters what does that remind you of the status of jews throughout history we're not allowed to work in certain fields we pay higher taxes we can't ride horses we can't own weapons where does this push us into the fields in which we're allowed to work the places we're allowed to live his character bruce willis's character similarly ends up a criminal because this is the sole lane in which these overarching powerful forces utterly outside of his, of his control the church mm-hmm. the international billionaires and the military industrial complex as represented by the cia will allow him to work cat right. burglary might as well be the law it might as well be hollywood it's the only place where barriers are not put up to his participation where the gates are not being kept, where he is encouraged and allowed to thrive and also to put to use his considerable skill set. Because mm-hmm. he's not just some guy. He's right. the best at what he does. Nobody else can pull off the things that he can. There's a level of acumen and genius that you could argue is being misapplied, but it's being applied in the only place it can be applied. 
Yeah, I feel like uh, that's. I I think I've settled on my read of of Hudson. He's our Jew of the of the film, yeah. Because like you said, improvising within this sort of very narrow, um, you know, span of what you can do. So it's like, you know, I'm gonna rob this like high tech Vatican museum with this like hardcore security system. I'm gonna test it out first with a teddy bear, but then. Don't ask any questions. I need postage stamps. I need olive oil. I need this, that, and the other. And he makes do with what he has. And I feel like you said, Adam, it's like a very Jewish trait to to kind of like you don't have much, but you can figure out what to do with the things you are given. Like in every situation that he's put in, he finds a very unique way to kind of get out of it. So he gets the dart in his neck. He's completely paralyzed, but he's able to like do this or that in order to like escape and do all these other things. He's a very crafty guy and can figure things out. The dart in the neck is interesting too, because what that represents is the, um, the notion, the trope that Jews are intellectuals cut off from their bodies, right? The, the hyper intellectual Jew. So the fact that he's only able to function from the neck up for this period of time and must free himself from this situation using only his intellect further cements his status. I would say that he and Tommy both are the Jewish characters in this oh, film. Okay. Yeah. There are Italian Jews. You know, that's where the, the ghetto came from. The word ghetto. That, that's where that came from. I don't normally do this, but I want to give you a, a, a mid pod assessment. You're killing the assignment, by the way, <laughs> you totally get it. And I love what you're bringing to it. So, so keep, you. keep on with it. Yeah. It's well, great. I got, all right, here's, here's something else. As we know, the role of text in Jewish life is critically important, central even. And I would argue that our Jewish characters, Tommy and Hudson, are the characters whose lives in some sense revolve around a reverence for and a use of text in ritual mm -hmm. and in practice, right? right? By text, of course, I mean the American songbook. The davening, which is, mm. which is which is their updated version of the Torah, let's say. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. This is what they bring to bear on any situation. They are incredibly well versed in it. They have almost a rabbinic uh, encyclopedic knowledge of the American songbook. They know mm -hmm. how long each song lasts. For the second, and they are able <laughs> they are able to apply them to any situation in much the way that Jewish folks rely on text in ritual and in life to govern our day-to-day -day and moment-to-moment -moment actions and reactions. So I think alone in this film, they are the ones whose relationship with text um, elevates them and gives them an added dimension by which they're able to navigate again the predatory practices of the military-industrial complex, complex, the Christian church, the Catholic church, and the uh, kind of international immoral billionaire class. I'm happy you brought up text and I love that read of, of the music. And, you know, I want to even go back and now figure out which specific songs are they singing and how we can kind of unify them because there's obviously it's a rich text, literally. But you just reminded me of one of the interesting choices of this movie, mm -hmm. which is the framing that it employs, putting this in almost like a storybook, if you recall, like yeah, in that yeah. first scene, even before we get into the Da Vinci part, although I actually think that's part of it, right? For those that don't know, we get like this full, you know, seven to 10 minute sequence, actually watching Da Vinci, you know, create this machine, use it. And then, you know, ultimately you see on his face, he comes to the decision to disperse of the pieces for it. But even before then, we kind of do that, like, 
I mean, I don't know what comes to mind is like the opening of Shrek, where it kind of opens up in this like storybook. The time was 1481. The artist was Leonardo da Vinci. The guy on the donkey is just the guy on a donkey. Here we kind of get that story. And then the movie ends with like a frame of Bruce Willis, you know, animated like he's in a book. What a world saved and the secrets of Da Vinci protected, Eddie finally got his coffee. Right. I think my take on it is similar to what you were talking about. You know, the Jewish text turning this into like this historical and almost... Like a fable, maybe? Yeah, like like a fable, like this eternal story, like something that kind of exists beyond this. And it turns everything a little bit more like you know, everything in the story is supposed to be a little more reflective, have a little bit more meaning. But I wanted to hear, you know, if what you made of that thing and, you know, where, where what you saw that choice was to put this movie, you know, add, I mean, literally, you know, 30 seconds to the front, 30 seconds to the back, just to put right. it in this storybook. I was just going to do a little short thing where it's like, in many of the other episodes that, you know, we've covered where, where like the rules are different. We just covered this um, on Defending Your Life and, and previously before and Bo was afraid. Like the rules of the game change when you understand that the framing is a little bit different. So because we're in a storybook, because like you said, Harry, it's a fable, like you kind of throw the rules out the window and like some of these characters can be bigger and like, yeah, it doesn't really make sense that the car came off the cliff and he's still alive. But it's a story and like what are you supposed to learn from it that you should trust your friends and you have your cappuccino and like there's all these like you know these morals and things that like uh, you know were reflective you know there's all these stories i feel like you know with yiddish folk tales of like you know wagons breaking down on the side of the road and then you fix the wheel and it actually was an angel and it's like does that actually make sense no but it's a story and the lesson that you take away from it is really the important part so i think that's a really good way to look at it harry where it's like you know, you don't have to be so granular about like, how does he survive on this gurney and how does he know the toll, like all this stuff you can really just enjoy the movie and just take away those lessons, I think is a really solid read. Yeah, I like that. Like it sets the tone, lowers yeah. your guard a little bit, tells yeah. you what you're getting into. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What do you think about that, Adam? Did you have the same read? I think framing it as a story and literally seeing the storybook open in that way does place you in a different kind of place. It's a story within a story in a sense. Not that we're ever told what the larger story is, but just the existence of a book and a hand opening that book places you sort of in a world within a world, if that makes sense. And it lends both a earthiness and a grandiosity to the mm -hmm. story because it was worthy of being set down in this beautiful illustrated book. There's a historical... Uh, you know, and, and, and then, of course, we see the scope of that book. I mean, in some sense, right, that book opens with Leonardo da Vinci and ends with Hudson Hawk drinking an espresso. So right. in, some in some sense, that book has just covered like 400, 500 years yeah. worth of material, right? Sure. And, and I'm going to say it almost canonizes Hudson Hawk as being kind of part of the same story as, <laughs> right, if it's going to open on like, yeah. like no one questions when you see Da Vinci kind of opening yeah. up, of course, yeah, he's right. one of our most famous humans ever. And it's like yeah. Hudson Hawk, you know, he's part of the story. Right. He's, he's Absolutely. the world's most famous cat burglar. I mean, he has, he's a cat burglar of great renown. So it makes yeah. sense that he's in this book. I don't know what yeah. the book is about, but you know. <laughs> yeah, right? it's unclear. But right. I mean, there is, yes, this paralleling of Da Vinci with Hudson Hawk, like, the genius that it takes not just to steal these items, but to reconstruct the crystal. Hudson Hawk has to intellectually level up to Da Vinci's um, status to be able to 
do this. Nobody else was able to put the crystal yeah. back together. He does it in about two seconds. He's just and like, he, and, he, and he palms a piece of it. Right. He's able to uh, fly the glider successfully. Right. And, you know, it's also worth pointing out that, like, as is implied very quickly in the opening to the movie, Da Vinci, much like Hudson Hawk, is a similarly kind of constrained, liminal mm -hmm. figure. Right. He's not somebody, despite his fame and his expertise and his brilliance, he doesn't operate free of the constraints of the society he, he is within. He is very much working for much more powerful people who may or may not respect him and his genius. Um, but there are references when Andy McDowell is giving the speech in the movie uh, about Da Vinci, when she comes down the stairs at the museum mm -hmm. and she and Hudson Hawk kind of reunite and share a glance. Though Leonardo is best known as a painter, it was his gift as an inventor who drew together science and art that is most incredible. He was also someone who was working on commission, working for the uh, Medici's, working for the powers of his time. He is, in a sense, also a great man who is partially reduced to the status of an artisan and an employee by totally. powers that supersede and transcend what he's able to do, capable of doing. So, you know, that same sense of Hudson Hawk having to operate in this morally relative world and this compromised world and the Jewishness of that, the liminality of that is something that in some sense is at least partially shared by Da Vinci as like the progenitor of this story and the creator of these artifacts that are going to ramify through history. Right. Wow. I didn't, I love that parallel between Hudson Hawk and Da Vinci. I feel like it, that's it why they're in that book. You know, they, they're both uh, improvising a lot and, and, you know, squeezed quite a bit uh, between all these forces at play. Now I really want to watch this movie again, dude. Mission accomplished, you know? <laughs> Let's take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about our, we have, we have a few categories to talk, it's our sort of lightning round where we'll, we'll discuss a few things and then we'll rate the film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. And then we want to hear about the Golem of Brooklyn. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Adam Mansbeck to discuss the classic film, Hudson Hawk. Um, our first category today is our most Jewish scene. So what is the scene in the movie that to you was like, oh, that's for sure a call out to something Jewish, culturally, liturgically, biblically, whatever. Uh, does anyone have one locked and loaded? I think I could start us off. Yeah. I, I don't know if I have one that the way you just described it so obviously, you know, would mm, be that's okay. Jewish, sure, but sure, sure. I didn't find so many of those. But I think I, I'm reading it Jewish and I, I don't think it's quite in the stretch territory. But um, specifically, it it's comes towards the end where we're with uh, Andy McDowell's character and she mm -hmm. kind of embraces the relationship with Bruce Willis. And he like even questions her like, what about, you know, like your boss, the guy upstairs. And she kind of says like, it's fine, right? And she's like, goes along with it. And the reason I'm calling that such a Jewish scene is because I think it represents one of the starkest contrasts between, you know, liturgical figures within, you know, specifically Catholicism and, you know, Judaism in the sense that in the Catholic world, there's this, you know, vow of celibacy. You're not supposed to be in any relationships once you become kind of, you know, in that world. 
and in Judaism, it's it's the complete flip. You know, it's it's you actually are encouraged to you know build a family no matter what mm-hmm. state you're in. If you're you know the rabbi of your community, whatever it is. And what I liked about that scene, and maybe I'm reading more into it, but you know that's the name of the game. But she doesn't. By the end of the movie, you don't get the sense that her character is abandoning the church. She's just saying, "I can have." my relationship with you and with God. And that's kind of, you know, going to be fine. And what does the next day look like? What did the next few weeks look like? I'm not sure. I don't know if, you know, her priest, you know, uh, father, quote unquote, is going to let her back in once he knows about the relationship. But at least in that moment, the kind of embracing of, you know, kind of two relationships in her life with God and with Bruce Willis's character, I'm I'm reading that in as a little bit Jewish uh, for my most Jewish scene. I hope that works. I think that works very well. I think in some sense, you know, Andy McDowell is navigating within the Jewish world. You might say that she's choosing a kind of rabbinic Judaism over a more temple-based Judaism, right? Exactly. Um, she's embracing a personal relationship with God that is portable, that is adaptable, that will allow her to thrive in diaspora, allow her to have this relationship rather than the more shuttered, stricter relationship that she would have if she was embracing a temple and priest-based version of the faith right adam what you got you know i mean as i've hopefully delineated here this movie is hugely and vastly jewish but the scene that i'm going to call out right now is when andy mcdowell's character is walking up the steps with the cardinal who is her handler within the church and he says something along the lines i'm paraphrasing but he says the vatican has foiled the advances of pirates and terrorists we will not lie down for some schmuck from New Jersey. Yeah. Now, even in this attempt to articulate the muscularity of the Catholic Church, perhaps unbeknownst to him, or perhaps beknownst to him, this cardinal is actually bowing to the cultural power of Judaism by invoking the word schmuck. He may think huh. he's insulting Bruce Willis, He may think that he is uh, denigrating Hudson Hawk, but by speaking in the tongue of the European Jewish shtetl, Mm -hmm. he is actually sacrificing more power than he may realize. He is switching tongues. He is... (laughs) I don't know. I I can't even finish. No, no, I like it. It's amazing. I'm I'm on board. I love it. Yeah. No, that I buy it. I'm, I buy it wholesale. That totally. Yeah, I, I thought that was like every time that that happens, and it happens a couple times in the script. Every time someone is clearly using like a Yiddishism. Yeah, I was like, okay, like this. It's that kind of movie, and I'm and I'm like looking online, and I'm like, I don't see like, you know, I don't think Bruce Willis is Jewish. I don't think Stephen D'Souza is Jewish. Michael Lerman's Jewish. Mike, yeah, okay, so he's Jewish, and then Robert Kraft is also Jewish. He Robert was, Kraft uh, is Jewish. He was yeah. a story, you know. He did. He was credited with story. Uh, Daniel Waters. I don't see it as. So it's interesting how this stuff kind of makes its way into the film, but uh, you know, I think it just helps with the sort of comedic tone. I buy that one, like I said. You know, whereas you two both kind of went with specific scenes and specific moments of dialogue with Annie McDowell, I might kind of pivot a little bit and just say generally the sort of any of the scenes around the museums, around the artifacts, um, especially when there's like tours kind of reminded me of like, you know, when you're going to Israel and like there's these, uh, you know, ancient museums where you're kind of looking at the history of, of your people. So for these people who are like in the Vatican and looking at the codex or looking at these old pieces, 
it's it sort of reminded me of like seeing these you know like mosaics from from greek and roman times or like these old artifacts that kind of just the general idea of, of there being this ancient history to connect to your modern day religion with sort of the past um and so that while not a specific scene just sort of the the setting of this ancient uh, museum i think that is uh that's definitely an interesting pick for quote unquote most jewish scene of the film but i appreciate the jewish lens that you uh sure. that you're placing on this movie which certainly was jewish but you don't have to be as specific in the next category we have which is what is the jewish stretch of the pod so the way we define it is normally the read of into the movie that was not necessarily intended by the filmmakers, but, you know, we're going to leverage that, you know, invoke some Jewish kind of ideas and themes. And to be honest, like Adam, if you don't have any, you've already given us about 12. So I feel like you're already good for this category. People yeah, can just yeah, listen yeah. back. But if you want to give say, us yeah. some more. No, pretty <laughs> much, pretty much every single thing I've said for the last hour. Yeah. <laughs> which is probably true. Yeah, yeah, right. The idea there, Bruce Willis returns to this gentrified neighborhood, this gentrified bar that has been stripped of all its character, all of its signifiers, all of the memorabilia that once graced its walls. And in particular, this steering wheel that has kind of a totemic value and a history behind it, which Tommy has relegated to a back room. And in removing it and sort of uh, de-ethnicizing the bar, if that's a word, uh, the steering wheel, in essence, becomes a mezuzah. Mm, I like that a lot. Right. Um, I'll add, I'll, and honestly, we're kind of in that weird stretch territory where, like, I don't think this was intended, but it's actually not so, you know, deep. Like, th this was kind of my initial thing. I mean, we're doing a movie about stealing, you know, something back, really, from the Vatican, from the church. And Daniel and I had discussed this even before, but for us, it was just very evocative of you know, the theory or in fact, I mean, I know there is a lot of truth to this. I don't know the exact status of a lot of the Second Temple items that were stolen by the Vatican Church and that are being apparently hidden underground somewhere. You know, you hear these stories about people who have seen it or know where it is, but the kind of, you know, especially with our stretched read of Bruce Willis, which I don't know if it was intended, but as this kind of Jewish, you know, almost folk hero, we've made him out to be kind of stealing back from the Vatican Church, Amacony, reclaiming huh? You know, some of those items. Exactly. Yeah. Fitting with, you know, the holiday of Hanukkah that we're kind of uh, in the midst of. Right. Because he's almost like stealing back the menorah. So I'm not sure right. if, if the horse is supposed to be evocative of any item in particular that we know was taken by the church. But even just seeing on screen, you know, this quasi Jewish character or just any character really taking back old relics from the Vatican stuff that they obviously, you know, didn't originate with, didn't create. There was something very uh, satisfying about that. And, you know, in a stretchy sense, that, that could be what the movie was going for. Sure. In some sense. Well, we could. I'm sure that's what they meant. I mean, that that mm -hmm. checks out 100 percent. I think I have one that's like building on our previous idea um, that these songs that they're singing are kind of like like prayer service. Um, so I don't know if you remember the sort of the sort of. I guess it's maybe like the third act where they're kind of rescuing people and then they get a hold of this sort of like grenade launcher and they're both sort of like singing together and shaking this grenade launcher and really it reminded me of sort of like during Sukkot you have the lulav and etrog and you do hakafot and you everyone is singing in sync and you're just like walking around the synagogue shaking a large you know leafy frond and a lemon and so that while not exactly the same thing, Lulav and Etrog and Grenade Launcher, that sort of reminded me of both of them sort of davening and praying in sync and then like using this device to help them achieve their goal. So very mm. stretchy, 
but uh, it, you know, I, I like the I, I like that idea that we posited earlier of the singing being prayer. So it's kind of yeah. built on top of that. I like that, and you know, yeah, these songs function regardless of their origins, regardless of how these guys came to understand these songs. They're a shared tongue. They're a shared language mm -hmm. that is unique to them, right? And that they understand so intimately that they can be in separate places and be perfectly on time in their mutual rendition of the song in a way that right. allows them to coordinate perfectly right. the actions that they're pursuing, whether it's launching grenades or stealing art. Right. Unifies them across borders, I really. Exactly. exactly. I love that. So that takes us to our final category before our ratings. Uh, you know, what is the film of Hudson Hawk? You know, this film from 1991. Now in 2023, obviously it's in high regard for you, Adam. But for the Jews, do you feel like this film is good for the Jews, bad for the Jews, or kind of meh? This film is the only thing that could save the Jews. <laughs> yeah. Short and I, uh, to the point. <laughs> I was I was prepared to just kind of speak for everyone and say there's just nothing so clearly Jewish enough for this to have any you know, impact, but I'm happy mm -hmm. I let you speak first because right. <laughs> I didn't realize there was going to be such a diverse array of opinions, but <laughs> it's either the most important and only significant movie, you know, that exists for the Jews or, you know, and maybe Daniel, you could tell us who you agree more with, but my opinion is just, I don't, I don't think anyone's watching this and, you know, changing their views on Jews too much. I mean, they could be reading into your kind of money reading that Personally, right. I didn't see, but sure, if sure, it was sure. obvious to you, maybe there's someone else picking up on it. But I kind of think this is a neutral movie for the Jews. That's, yeah, no, I'm saying if we put on our very like high prescription Jews on film glasses, like you really need to have like a very specific like degree of focus and like a you know to to get it get the read that we were able to uncover so beautifully. I think in that scenario, in that sort of storybook. Like if we're in the Jews on film story and we're able to see everything the way that we just kind of presented the case for it today, I feel like if Hudson Hawk and uh, Tommy Five Tones are uh, Jewish characters and, you know, the cases that we made today, I think they're they're shining examples of what to do in the face of diversity. So in that way, I would say it's good for the Jews in real life outside of that story. I feel like, you know, it's meh for the Jews. So that's where I'm at. Now that we've discussed that, let's put it into numbers. Let's give this movie a ranking, the three of us, one to five Jewish stars on a scale of specifically how Jewish it is, not on its quality, which, you know, I think we can all agree is a five out of five, but specifically 100%. on how Jewish it is, one to five Jewish stars. Who wants to start us off? I feel like Adam needs to set, he needs to blaze the trail for us. I mean, it's funny because this evokes the scene in the movie where Minerva, and uh, Darwin Mayflower walk into the auction, at which point the bidding on the horse is at 20 million. And he just walks in and he's like, $100 million. <laughs> so I'm going to go with 100 million Jewish stars. <laughs> wow. I, uh, Daniel, we have to like look back at our older episodes, but I, right. I think that might be the highest total that's ever <laughs> been given. We'd Adjusted have to for inflation, this. yeah. Exactly. I, I don't want to tell you, I don't want to you know, be wrong about that, but I think it might be. Wow, that's really high. <laughs> good for you, man. Good for you. Um, Harry, how about yourself? All right. Well, the good news is no matter how low I go, the average is still going to be pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, I think I was leaning towards a one. Like I said, I love this movie. It's just how clear the Jewishness is. But honestly, the deep 
like the the deep conversations that we've been having and like a lot of these reads like if you only gave me one of those i would have you know disregarded it but the amount that we can really tie into just the experience you know the assimilated experience the gentrified experience the you know the guy the jew you know the jew quote unquote who has to you know do the dirty work for the kind of elders you know whatever they are that are kind of running society that they're not willing to get their hands dirty but they're kind of pushing him around like it's enough that i'm i'm still gonna give it a two you know two is not gonna <laughs> you know push the scales in any meaningful way but like i don't know two out of five dear stars like there are probably movies that as creative as you want to be, you can't see anything in there. And right. a lot of that stuff was. So, you know, it's not going over a two and a half to the point that I'd call this an actively Jewish movie, but two out of five for you. Okay. What about you, Daniel? I think I'm going to sit like two, five, five, like just enough. Oh. Yeah, because I'm like, shocked. I think we made the case today that it is, you know, there are certainly <laughs> Jewish elements in the film for sure. I think what we have done is become like uh, commentators you know, like with uh, Chumash, you know, the and the Torah and things like that, there's this sort of textual level. And then there's like lots of different commentaries on the text. And I think, you know, we have been able to make the case that this is a Jewish film, like for all the reasons mentioned beforehand. Um, so I'm going to give it just a drop over two and a half stars. So 2.55 stars uh, for the film Hudson Hawk, starring Bruce Willis and Annie McDowell and Danny Aiel, directed by the Jewish director, Michael Lehman, you know, so there's that sort of extra weight added to it. Um, and I think uh, I really appreciated you, you know, bringing this film to us to discuss, you know, for Jews on film, which is clearly so close to your heart in so many ways. I wanted to know if, if, if you could let our audience know what your new book, The Golem of Brooklyn is about. In Jewish folklore, a golem is a humanoid creature, nine, 10 feet tall, constructed of mud or clay, always by a rabbi or a learned man, always at a time of immediate crisis, usually surrected in order to protect the Jews engaged in the martial defense of the Jewish people. This book involves a golem who is made not by a learned or wise or even observant man, but rather a golem that is brought to life by a very stoned art teacher in Brooklyn who just happens to have a lot of clay around. The golem immediately begins screaming at him in Yiddish and trashing his apartment. Len, the guy who made the golem, doesn't speak Yiddish, so the first thing he does is run out to try to find a translator after parking the golem in front of a television set that is playing Curb Your Enthusiasm. What we eventually learn once the golem is able to communicate after he learns to speak English by binge watching Curb Your Enthusiasm after accidentally ingesting a large amount of LSD. What he's been screaming at Len is two things really. One is where is my dick because Len failed to make him a dick. The other is where is the crisis? It's unthinkable for the golem that he's been brought to life in the absence of a crisis. And we also learn at this point that the golem is a creature with an ancestral memory. And this is where my golem diverges most significantly from the golems of folklore. This golem reveals that there's only ever been one golem. Len has not made him, but remade him. He remembers and retains all of his memories from his previous iterations, and he has existed since the dawn of time. So in some sense, this golem is a repository of Jewish memory and trauma, two words that are more or less synonymous. Um, and thus begins a kind of uh, winding adventure. Eventually, as the golem persistently tries to determine where this crisis is, he is shown 
footage of the 2017 Charlottesville Tiki Torch Unite the Right Jews Will Not Replace Us marchers. And he's like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Where the fuck are those guys? And thus begins a road trip to Kentucky where a similar rally is going to take place in a couple of days' time. And ultimately, as we journey toward this rally and also dip back in time to learn about the Golem's previous adventures in places as disparate as 5th century Babylon and 11th century Spain and ancient Egypt. Um, fundamentally, what Len and his partner in crime, Miri, will come to realize is that they're faced with an ethical dilemma. They can either allow the golem to run amok and kill the enemies of the Jews, in which case they might be safe, but in which case they also may no longer be Jewish in some essential moral, spiritual way. The thing they are trying to protect and defend, this action may be so anathema to the values inherent to Judaism that they you know, may have lost before they've even begun to fight. Or option two is that they kill the golem. So this is sort of ultimately where, where the book uh, ends up, is with this kind of quandary that these characters face. But a lot of crazy shit happens along the way. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that this is probably one of the most exciting books I've read in recent history. Uh, highly recommend everyone check it out. It's, it's it's so unique and it draws on so many different like influences, um, you know, both secular and Jewish and modern and old, you know, and ancient. And it's it's really a fun read. Uh, it's a, it makes a great Hanukkah present. Uh, and I'm assuming people could get it wherever books are sold. Yes, The Golem of Brooklyn is available at your favorite bookshop, your favorite online retailer. Wherever you go for books, it should be there waiting for you. So definitely, you know, it gets the Jews on film seal of approval if that means anything. I don't know if that's going to help oh. or hurt your sales. Oh, that's but. next printing. We're putting that on the cover. Okay. Okay, fantastic. Uh, yeah, and, and make sure, you know, everyone to uh, check out Adam um, on social media and uh, to follow all that he's up to, you know, his upcoming speaking engagements and things like that. And um, and we have a brand new line of birch. Yeah, we just did some hoodies and some T-shirts and some tote bags and, and coffee mugs and things like that. Uh, with the names of all your favorite actors, actresses, directors, and filmmakers and things like that. Um, but have a good one and send us an email also at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com if you have any questions or film suggestions. But have a good one and Shabbat Shalom. Bye. Thank you. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel edited this episode. Follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.